I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the situation between Israel and the Palestinians right now that's unfolding as we speak, we're talking on Wednesday, May 12th, in the afternoon Eastern time. I have with us CSIS is Senior Vice President John Alterman, who is our Middle East Chair, who is our Brzezinski Chair in Geostrategy, and who is really, to me, the most acute observer of what's going on in the Middle East that I know anywhere. John, thank you so much for being with us today to really understand what's going on in the, in the latest conflict in the peace process. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you always. So, John, in your view... What is this all about? It, it's got to be about more than six apartments or, you know, people getting heated on the Temple Mount, because that happens a lot. What's different this time? I think you had several things going on. One is you had rising tensions. And there were there really were rising tensions for some period of time. They weren't managed very well on either side. And especially, I think you saw a lot of right-wing Israelis who were coming in and then mixing things up with Palestinians in ways that the government wasn't really responding to very effectively. You have very weak political systems on both sides. You have an Israeli prime minister who just failed to put together a, a winning coalition, thinking potentially he's looking at the end of his political career. You have an 85-year-old Palestinian president who canceled legislative elections in part because he thought his party was going to get shellacked. And he has overstayed his welcome by far. He's not popular. He doesn't really have legitimacy anymore. And in this volatile situation where you have a, an eruption on the Temple Mount, on the Haram Sharif, which really wasn't managed very well, then suddenly you have Hamas, which isn't a party to any of this starting lobbing rockets from Gaza, injecting itself into a Jerusalem story. And instead of a Jerusalem management story, it becomes an Israeli-Palestinian story with Hamas as one of the antagonists. Suddenly, the Arab community in Israel is up in arms. It affects the, the coalition negotiations for how you can put together an anti-Netanyahu coalition in Israel. The whole thing becomes a mess and it's not clear to me that there's anybody on either the Palestinian side or on the Israeli side who has the interest or the ability to, to pull this into a very different direction. So, John, this is a really important point that you bring up and, and, and a point that's not being covered in the media that I've seen. And I've tried to consume a, a wide array of media on this. Netanyahu now for I think it's the fourth time hasn't been able to put together a government and his rival Yair Lapid has been charged with trying to put together a government on the Palestinian side Mahmoud Abbas as you pointed out I, I don't think has been through an election in 12 years and he stayed way past his his time he, his last election was 16 years ago yeah 16 years ago so 16 years ago was his last election and both of them seem to be pretty weak right now are they perpetuating this cycle to try to hold on to power or solidify power? Or are they trying to, you know, is, is this kind of a wag the dog by both of them? I don't think it is wag the dog. I think 
Abbas has been largely sidelined in this, and he doesn't have much much ability to control either what the Israelis think or what Hamas does. I don't think Netanyahu created this. I think Netanyahu will try to find a way to benefit from it because that's what Benjamin Netanyahu does. I mean, he's a superb political tactician, and he will look at ways to continue what he was doing before, which is how do you undermine the coalition against him? How does he try to cobble together a coalition where he has a political future? I think he's going to do it. He didn't create it, but he's going to try to use it if he can use it, because that's what politicians do. The larger problem is, where are you taking this? Where are you taking this? And I don't think either either side has any sense of where to take it. I think the Israelis are determined to teach Hamas a lesson. But the reality of this situation is the Israelis perpetually need to teach Hamas a lesson. Israelis call it mowing the grass. You have to do it every few years. And what the Israelis have discovered is you can't really fundamentally change the situation in Gaza from the air. You can't go into Gaza on the ground without risking heavy casualties. And the Israelis find themselves, you know, ultimately with a political problem that you can't solve militarily. It's not clear you can solve it politically either. And I think that's really the the nub of the challenge for both the Palestinian and the Israeli leaderships is, is there a political solution to this problem? Is there a way to make the politics move forward? I think in many ways we've abandoned it. The Trump administration's approach was you can ignore the politics and the Palestinians will be forced to go along with things that they keep lowering the price. We'll just present facts on the ground and that will change it. It hasn't fundamentally changed it. You have a new generation that in many ways is angrier. And I think in the longer term, you have to provide a political pathway for both Palestinians and Israelis to a better place. How you do it from here, it's possible from here it would create it, but I'm afraid to create it, it would have to be a lot more destructive. I think the better way is if you have Israeli and Palestinian governments that genuinely want to do this. I don't think we have that right now. Could we have it? Possibly. Could we have it as a consequence of this? Maybe. I hope that we can get there through a normal political process and not through a conflagration that is so damaging to both sides that we get to it because people look at the rubble and say, this is this this can't, this can't be. Because then there are going to be a lot of dead people on both sides. Absolutely. There's so much I want to ask you about this. But before we move on, I, I want to ask you, you just spoke about something that's fascinating to me. And, and you wrote about this in your recent Critical Questions, which is posted on the front page of CSIS.org. You talk about the Israelis feeling like they need to mow the grass every so often in Gaza. Explain what they mean by that. Like Nobody looks forward to doing it, but every few years, the Israelis come in and they feel they have to destroy weapons depots and attack Hamas military leaders and break down infrastructure. And, you know, and the fact is when they do that, there's a lot of collateral damage, partly because Hamas situates a lot of these things in civilian areas. Strategically. Strategically. 
partly because, you know, there are sometimes mistakes, but there are a lot of reasons. Partly because you decide that's an important target, you're going to hit it anyway, even if other people have to die. And I think there are people in Hamas who say it's actually good for us because the world sees how evil Israel is. And the people here understand the Israelis aren't going to provide a way out. So it binds the people closer to us. Other people say, look, what can I do? Right. And it's it's this perpetual cycle. I think it embeds a strategy where Israelis strike and feel they've done something. Palestinians in Gaza survive the strike and feel they've done something. And rather than solving the problem, you embed the the pattern of violence on both sides. That each side feels that they've been successful. And each side looks forward to the next confrontation because they think that will demonstrate they've been successful. I, I suppose you can make an argument that if Israel didn't do this at all, that Hamas would be even more aggressive in between. And there's no question that Hamas arrests and kills Palestinians who attack Israel in inappropriate ways at inappropriate times. They want to be the ones that regulate that. But is there another way out of this? Is there a way to bring Gaza so it's not constantly fighting with Israel and not constantly being destroyed by Israel? I think that's something we need to explore, which the last administration wasn't interested in exploring at all. And I think, frankly, the Biden administration has put somewhat down on the priority list because it's trying to extricate itself from the Middle East. So it's not right now. I think for diplomats, the question is, does the current violence create any ripeness? Does it create an opportunity to plant some seeds? Is there something you can do to move things in a positive direction to, out of the crisis, create an opportunity? I don't think we're there this week. I think next week, we will be looking very carefully for, for the opportunities to get something positive out of this. I think for this week, it's it's partly an effort of, of encouraging restraint, making sure this doesn't totally dip into chaos, and partly, you know, understanding the Israelis need to defend themselves and, and not turning a blind eye, but quietly understanding the Israelis are, are going to act and, and the U.S. isn't going to get in the way, nor will Europeans or others. So when it comes to the Palestinians in Gaza, course, ruled by Hamas. This has been a problem for so long. Ariel Sharon famously disengaged from Gaza, took Israelis out of Gaza because he said, we don't have a partner for peace, so we're just going to try to move ahead without them. Is there any chance that there will be a partner for peace that, that emerges from this in your view? I think there is certainly a broad Palestinian interest in greater Palestinian unity. I think there is potential Palestinian common ground on thinking about what a post-Abbas government looks like. I think we're not really at the, at the point of peace because at this point, as you know, Israelis are less interested in a two-state solution and Palestinians are less interested in a two-state solution because they don't think there is a two-state solution. The Palestinians and Israelis' fates are intertwined whether they want them to be or not. 
as you can see right now, because, you know, there's a lot of misery to go around. You know, you have people in Tel Aviv are hiding in, in shelters. Um, you Many know, of whom we both know. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, and you know, and, and just to put even, you know, a finer point on it, my son's school has an exchange program with Ramallah friends. And my son's had Palestinian football teammates. And we're thinking about them today, you know. And the rockets don't discriminate between Jewish houses and Arab houses. Their hours have been killed as well. The fates are intertwined. And the question is, can you find a way to at least have progress toward something that's more sustainable for the two sides? I think Israelis had felt, certainly over the last several years, that this was all sustainable, it was all manageable. The Palestinians aren't a problem. The U.S. is, is on our side. The, the, the Gulf Arabs are coming on board. We don't have to do anything. We don't have, the problem has been solved. The Arab world's moved on, the problem's been solved. And I think this week is a, a very sad reminder that the problem's not solved and nobody's going away. The Jews aren't going away and the Arabs aren't going away. Let's talk about the Gulf states. So, you know, Israel, through the Abraham Accords and through the work that Benjamin Netanyahu has been doing for a very long time, has been trying to create alliances with Gulf states. That has worked out pretty well as of recent. What are the Gulf states saying about this current conflict? Look, they're no friends of Hamas. I mean, all the states in the Arab world dislike Hamas. Hamas is related to the Muslim Brotherhood, and all of the, the states in the Arab world are hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood with the possible exception of Tunisia, where they, they sit in the government. So they're not in favor of Hamas. But they saw things in Jerusalem that they found very troubling. And it makes them uncomfortable to see what they see as, as Israeli oppression of Palestinian Arabs either seeking to pray in Jerusalem or in Israeli towns where Arabs live. And, and they were upset by the activity at the Al Aqsa Mosque, is what you're referring to. Right. Because that's religious. It's not Palestinian. It's religious. And the, and the old city of Jerusalem and the Damascus Gate and, and you know, the, the, the sort of the, the right-wing Israelis attacking Arabs in East Jerusalem, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I think they've tried to differentiate between the Jerusalem peace and the Hamas peace. Hamas is interested in erasing the difference between the Jerusalem peace and the Hamas peace. And I think, you know, the Israelis have not been doing themselves many favors because they haven't been differentiating as much as, as they should be. I mean, I think they need to be sending a tremendous message of reassurance to Palestinians, Arab citizens of Israel, and Palestinians in Jerusalem, some of whom have Israeli citizenship and many of whom do not, but they have Jerusalem residency. And also for, for Palestinians in the West Bank, that this is not this is not about them. It's about Hamas and rockets. And don't let Hamas speak for you. And I think the Israelis play into Hamas's hands when they turn this into another Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because that's what Hamas would love it to be. And they would love to speak for the Palestinians. But they don't. They don't have majority support in, among Palestinians. And I, th I think Israel needs to, to do a better job disentangling these two things, deal with Hamas or Hamas, 
and deal with with Jerusalem as as the people who who have to live in Jerusalem. That's a really important point. I mean, the motivations here are not what we always think they are. You know, Hamas wants to make this a wider conflict. Israel, you know, is trying to survive and in the process um, making it a wider conflict themselves instead of saying, you know, we're dealing with terrorists to our south. Hamas would love to be the poster child for the Palestinian national cause, right? That, that, that's what they've tried to do. And I think Israel has a keen interest in not letting them do that. Is Hamas even as popular in Gaza now as they were 10 years ago? There's certainly opposition to them in Gaza, but people are quiet. There is support for them in the West Bank, but not universal support at all. You know, frankly, some of the Palestinian leaders who, who pull the strongest are, are people who are not either part of Hamas or part of Fatah. There is a, a line of thought in the Palestinian community, that the parties are corrupt, but the cause is just. And so can you find somebody like Marwan Barghouti, who is in Israeli prison, a nationalist who has credibility with both Fatah and Hamas supporters? You know, so I think you do have the seeds for a different kind of Palestinian polity. There are certainly leaders who aspire to lead the Palestinian Authority, and whether it's Mohammed Dahlan or Jabril Rajoub and others who have their own ties. But but it feels to me like there is a certain amount of dynamism among in the Palestinian political world, which after this could create something different. And out of something different, you could have something constructive. Mahmoud Abbas has has outlived his welcome. Mahmoud Abbas played a role and was a diplomat in the days of Yasser Arafat leaving the Palestinian Authority. I remember being in Kuwait and hearing Mahmoud Abbas speak in Arabic to an Arab audience with about four Westerners, hundreds of people. There is no military solution to this conflict. The militarization of the Intifada was a mistake. We have to negotiate with the Israelis. All those things in 2004. But in 2021, Mahmoud Abbas is not going to lead Palestinians into a peace agreement with Israel. He's not trusted by the Israelis or the Palestinians to do it. And I think, again, he was right. There isn't a military solution to this conflict. Israelis aren't going away and Palestinians aren't going away. Given those realities, what are we going to do? John, Israel has, you know, through the Abraham Accords, Israel's gotten a lot of praise on the world stage for developing these alliances. And, you know, for the first time in a long time, hasn't felt so isolated. Does this set Israel back? You know, Israel, from its standpoint, is just trying to survive these attacks. You know, you look at if you look at video, you see, you know, Israel's Iron Dome in full effect, taking scores of missiles out of the sky that would be landing on people's homes and landing on, you know, on places where people congregate all over the state of Israel in big population centers like Tel Aviv. And, and now, you know, Hamas is talking about attacking Elat and other places, Haifa, you know, so big population centers in Israel. So Israel is in survival mode, but 
do they emerge from this, you know, worse for the wear in terms of how they're perceived on the national stage? So I think yes and no. There's no question in my mind that there's a hit in terms of the Arab governments that have had a rapprochement with Israel. There is a hit with Europe. There's a hit with the United States. I'm not sure there's a hit with China, which is very important, increasingly important diplomatic relationship for Israel. I don't think there's a hit with India, although India is preoccupied with other things right now. But it's also an important relationship for Israel. You know, Israel, I don't think there's a hit with Russia. So Israel has a more diverse set of relationships. And I think they look and they say, well, this doesn't devastate our international standing. But I think we're where the challenge comes that Israel doesn't aspire to be China. Israel doesn't aspire to be India. Israel's argument is always that it's a profoundly Western state. It belongs in that community of democracies and all those things. And there's a way in which sustained warfare, sustained occupation, it becomes harder, I think, to, to maintain those ties with some of the people that Israel feels most affinity toward. I think you know, Israel is a remarkable place that actually has rule of law, where the courts matter, where people have clear rights. And it seems to me that that gives you the seeds for moving this into a much better space than it's been. And one of the things I worry about is that Israel over the last 20 or 30 years, when you poll Israelis, is it more important that Israel be democratic or Jewish? Rising numbers of Israelis say it's more important that it be Jewish than democratic. And it seems to me that, that, that there's a question about what the future of Israel will look like with a perpetually sustaining large populations of Arabs who don't have citizenship, but whose lives are controlled by Israel. I don't think anything in the Trump administration, whether it's moving the embassy, whether it's it's making peace agreements with Gulf states, whether it's acknowledging Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, none of those things alter that reality. And I think that there's a profound question which Israelis are serious about, because Israelis are serious about rights and laws and all those things. There's a profound question about what happens to all those Arabs and under what legal framework do we deal with them? And I think, frankly, that the, 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 the Trump administration interlude persuaded some people you actually never had to resolve those issues. And I think that's wrong. And how they get resolved, I don't know. But I think they do need to get resolved. And again, whether whether I don't think that this episode of violence puts us toward getting them resolved, might, but I don't think it does. But it could be that the, the political crisis that has absorbed Israel for the last several years, where you can't really get a coalition, I think that crisis has a much better possibility of planting the seeds for getting us beyond the status quo into a place where we're moving toward a resolution. I don't know what the resolution is going to look like. I don't know how much it's going to look like two states, one state. But I th I, th I think that the, the idea that 
that you don't have to worry about this anymore. I think this week is a reminder. Unless you deal with the problems, they don't go away. So, John, you mentioned earlier as we were talking that the Biden administration has taken a pretty hands-off approach so far. They've said Israel has a right to defend itself, and it seems like they're hoping things will de-escalate and they won't have to engage any more than that. What do you think is going to happen next with the Biden administration? What's their next move on this? Will there be pressure on them to get more involved? So, I mean, there have been phone calls and, and Jake Sullivan spoke to the, the Israeli counterpart and he spoke to the Egyptian national security advisor to try to get some messages through, I presume, both to, to Hamas, to the Palestinian Authority, and, and potentially also to the Israelis. So I think there's going to be some effort at, at sort of regional diplomacy. You know, one of the things that's always hard to understand about these these things is is when you start dropping bombs, things can change really quickly, really unexpectedly. The wrong bomb in the wrong place on either side. You suddenly you have 50 people die. It becomes a different conflict. And we are in danger every single minute of every single day of that happening. I think if that happens, the Biden administration will try to engage. They are trying to ratchet up. My friend Hattie Amr, the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, was sent over. That you know, when you start with the mid-level officials, it gives you a lot of a lot of room to work your way up the system. I think it's something to say you're doing this week. Next week, if it's not resolved, there'll be an escalation. The week after that, there'll be an escalation. I think it's hard because there's not an obvious counterpart. When the Israeli government is in in formation and Mahmoud Abbas is not controlling what's happening on the Palestinian side, so th- th- there are some ways in which, you know, in a different political environment, you'd have more obvious levers to pull, and in the current political environment, it's harder. So I think there's a little bit, a little bit more reluctance on top of the Biden administration's conviction a that now the time isn't right to do a big investment in Arab-Israeli issues. And we need to put less time focusing on the Middle East. The important caveat to that is the Biden administration has talked a lot about how we're still interested in the Middle East. We're just going to be less focused on military instruments and more on diplomacy and statecraft. And if there's a time that calls for diplomacy and statecraft, it's now. So I think they will be looking for an opening. And it wouldn't surprise me if they see that opening, that they would would come in in a big way. How soon do they need to think about a special envoy for this? I think they're very reluctant to do the special envoy thing. Again, who would? I mean, it's not clear who who the special envoy would talk to. It's not clear what the the task would be. I mean, if you if you start getting to a point where you're unwinding things, I could see that. But I think a, a special envoy, in order to stop the fighting, is not something the administration is going to do. So let's assume that there's a ceasefire relatively soon. What happens after that? I mean, relatively soon is like in the next week or so. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's say in the next week. So I think that, that you know, one of the first questions is what's happening in Israeli politics and whether you begin to get movement toward a new Israeli government. I think there is going to be a, an interest in seeing if there's anything to be done to move Palestinian politics in a, a more constructive direction. As I said, they just canceled legislative elections at presidential elections scheduled for, for later this summer where Abbas was not going to do well. 
there may be an effort to try to get Palestinian, if, if there's a belief that Palestinian politics can move in a more constructive direction, there may be an effort to do that. But part of that also, you require an Israeli partner because Israel also has influence over Palestinian politics and not only because you have a question of whether Palestinians who are residents of Jerusalem can vote. There, there are other tools that Israel has and Israel uses. So I think there'll, there'll be a lot to unpack I think they're hoping that that they have some time to unpack things. Uh, and I think they're looking forward to a time when you can plan uh, because right now it's it's a lot of reacting and a lot of cautioning people. I think there's, there's a message of we support you, but there also are some limits on what needs to happen. So, John, final question. From where you sit, is this a hopeless situation? Is it hopeful somewhere in between? I don't think anything is totally hopeless. I really don't. I certainly don't think the Israeli-Palestinian situation is hopeless right now. It is deeply troubled. I think this is partly the fruit of the last several years. And an approach to the United States is that we don't really have to resolve this in a way that, that meets Palestinian needs. And we don't have to press the Israelis to do much. I don't think the U.S. job is to press the Israelis. I think the U.S. job is to help Israelis pursue their own enlightened self-interest. I think actually the team that's in the White House now and, and, and staffing the Biden administration, I think they're going to be looking for opportunities to help the Israelis see their own enlightened self-interest. I think there are certainly possibilities in Israeli politics. You, know, you have this very interesting, if, if you have the Yair Lapid, Naftali Bennett coalition, it's a coalition that encompasses a lot of different schools of thought in Israel. Sure does. And can you use that to create a new consensus about a new vision for where this might go? And can you build a new kind of Palestinian polity and a new Palestinian consensus that leads in a more constructive direction? I don't think we're going to have a, a, a deal anytime soon, but I could see this moment leading to a much more constructive and active environment in the coming months and years. And I think it shakes us out of the reverie that I think some people were in in the fall when you get the signing ceremony in the White House lawn and people say it's over. And this week's a reminder, it's not over. John, thank you so much for helping us get closer to the truth of the matter about this extremely complex situation in the Middle East. Really appreciate it. Andrew, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much. Hope to do it again soon. You got it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 